Part One B of Auguste Comte and Positivism. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Auguste Comte and Positivism by John Stuart Mill. Part One B. Thus did the different successive states of the human intellect, even at an early stage of its progress, overlap one another. The fetishistic, the polytheistic, and the metaphysical modes of thought coexisting even in the same minds while the belief in invariable laws which constitutes the positive mode of thought was slowly winning its way beneath them all as observation and experience disclosed in one class of phenomena after another the laws to which they are really subject it was this growth of positive knowledge which principally determined the next transition in the theological conception of the universe from polytheism to monotheism it cannot be doubted that this transition took place very tardily the conception of a unity in nature which would admit of attributing it to a single will is far from being natural to man and only finds admittance after a long period of discipline and preparation the obvious appearances all pointing to the idea of a government by many conflicting principles we know how high a degree both of material civilization and of moral and intellectual development preceded the conversion of the leading populations of the world to the belief in one god the superficial observations by which christian travellers have persuaded themselves that they found their own monotheistic belief in some tribes of savages have always been contradicted by more accurate knowledge those who have read for instance mr cole's kichigami know what to think of the great spirit of the American Indians, who belongs to a well-defined system of polytheism, interspersed with large remains of an original fetishism. We have no wish to dispute the matter with those who believe that monotheism was the primitive religion, transmitted to our race from its first parents in uninterrupted tradition. By their own acknowledgment, the tradition was lost by all the nations of the world except a small and peculiar people in whom it was miraculously kept alive but who were themselves continually lapsing from it and in all the earlier parts of their history did not hold it at all in its full meaning but admitted the real existence of other gods though believing their own to be the most powerful and to be the creator of the world a greater proof of the unnaturalness of monotheism to the human mind before a certain period in its development could not well be required the highest form of monotheism christianity has persisted to the present time in giving partial satisfaction to the mental dispositions that lead to polytheism by admitting into its theology the thoroughly polytheistic conception of a devil when monotheism after many centuries made its way to the greeks and romans from the small corner of the world where it existed we know how the notion of demons facilitated its reception by making it unnecessary for christians to deny the existence of the gods previously believed in it being sufficient to place them under the absolute power of the new god as the gods of olympus were already under that of zeus and as the local deities of all the subjugated nations had been subordinated by conquest to the divine patrons of the roman state in whatever mode natural or supernatural we choose to account for the early monotheism of the hebrews there can be no question that its reception by the gentiles was only rendered possible by the slow preparation which the human mind had undergone from the philosophers in the age of the caesars nearly the whole educated and cultivated class had outgrown the polytheistic creed 
and though individually liable to returns of the superstition of their childhood, were predisposed, such of them as did not reject all religion whatever, to the acknowledgment of one supreme providence. It is vain to object that Christianity did not find the majority of its early proselytes among the educated class, since, except in Palestine, its teachers and propagators were mainly of that class, many of them, like St. Paul, well versed in the mental culture of their time and they had evidently found no intellectual obstacle to the new doctrine in their own minds. We must not be deceived by the recrudescence, at a much later date, of a metaphysical paganism in the Alexandrian and other philosophical schools, provoked not by attachment to polytheism, but by distaste for the political and social ascendancy of the Christian teachers. The fact was, that monotheism had become congenial to the cultivated mind and a belief which has gained the cultivated minds of any society, unless put down by force, is certain, sooner or later, to reach the multitude. Indeed, the multitude itself had been prepared for it, as already hinted, by the more and more complete subordination of all other deities to the supremacy of Zeus, from which the step to a single deity, surrounded by a host of angels, and keeping in recalcitrant subjection an army of devils, was by no means difficult. By what means, then, had the cultivated minds of the Roman Empire been educated for monotheism? By the growth of a practical feeling of the invariability of natural laws. Monotheism had a natural adaptation to this belief, while polytheism naturally and necessarily conflicted with it. As men could not easily, and in fact never did, suppose that beings so powerful had their power absolutely restricted, each to its special department the will of any divinity might always be frustrated by another. And unless all their wills were in complete harmony, which would itself be the most difficult to credit of all cases of invariability, and would require beyond anything else the ascendancy of a supreme deity, it was impossible that the course of any of the phenomena under their government could be invariable. But if, on the contrary, all the phenomena of the universe were under the exclusive and uncontrollable influence of a single will, it was an admissible supposition that this will might be always consistent with itself, and might choose to conduct each class of its operations in an invariable manner. In proportion, therefore, as the invariable laws of phenomena revealed themselves to observers, the theory which ascribed them all to one will began to grow plausible but must still have appeared improbable until it had come to seem likely that invariability was the common rule of all nature. The Greeks and Romans at the Christian era had reached a point of advancement at which this supposition had become probable. The admirable height to which geometry had already been carried had familiarized the educated mind with the conception of laws absolutely invariable. The logical analysis of the intellectual processes by Aristotle had shown a similar uniformity of law in the realm of mind. In the concrete external world, the most imposing phenomena, those of the heavenly bodies, which by their power over the imagination had done most to keep up the whole system of ideas connected with supernatural agency, had been ascertained to take place in so regular an order as to admit of being predicted with a precision which to the notions of those days must have appeared perfect and though an equal degree of regularity had not been discerned in natural phenomena generally, even the most empirical observation had ascertained so many cases of an uniformity almost complete, 
that inquiring minds were eagerly on the lookout for further indications pointing in the same direction, and vied with one another in the formation of theories which, though hypothetical and essentially premature, it was hoped would turn out to be correct representations of invariable laws governing large classes of phenomena. When this hope and expectation became general, they were already a great encroachment on the original domain of the theological principle. Instead of the old conception, of events regulated from day to day by the unforeseen and changeable volitions of a legion of deities, it seemed more and more probable that all the phenomena of the universe took place according to rules which must have been planned from the beginning, by which conception the function of the gods seemed to be limited to forming the plans, and setting the machinery in motion. Their subsequent office appeared to be reduced to a sinecure, or if they continued to reign, it was in the manner of constitutional kings, bound by the laws to which they had previously given their assent. Accordingly, the pretension of philosophers to explain physical phenomena by physical causes, or to predict their occurrence, was, up to a very late period of polytheism, regarded as a sacrilegious insult to the gods. Anaxagoras was banished for it, Aristotle had to fly for his life, and the mere unfounded suspicion of it contributed greatly to the condemnation of Socrates. We are too well acquainted with this form of the religious sentiment even now to have any difficulty in comprehending what must have been its violence then. It was inevitable that philosophers should be anxious to get rid of at least these gods, and so escape from the particular fables which stood immediately in their way. Accepting a notion of divine government, which harmonized better with the lessons they learnt from the study of nature, and a god concerning whom no mythos, as far as they knew, had yet been invented. Again, when the idea became prevalent that the constitution of every part of nature had been planned from the beginning, and continued to take place as it had been planned, this was itself a striking feature of resemblance extending through all nature, and affording a presumption that the whole was the work, not of many, but of the same hand. It must have appeared vastly more probable that there should be one indefinitely foreseeing intelligence and immovable will, than hundreds and thousands of such. The philosophers had not at that time the arguments which might have been grounded on universal laws not yet suspected, such as the law of gravitation and the laws of heat, but there was a multitude, obvious even to them, of analogies and homologies in natural phenomena which suggested unity of plan, and a still greater number were raised up by their active fancy, aided by their premature scientific theories all of which aimed at interpreting some phenomenon by the analogy of others supposed to be better known. Assuming, indeed, a much greater similarity among the various processes of nature than ampler experience has since shown to exist, the theological mode of thought thus advanced from polytheism to monotheism through the direct influence of the positive mode of thought, not yet aspiring to complete speculative ascendancy. But, Inasmuch as the belief in the invariability of natural laws was still imperfect even in highly cultivated minds, and in the merest fancy in the uncultivated, it gave rise to the belief in one God, but not in an immovable one. For many centuries the God believed in was flexible by entreaty, was incessantly ordering the affairs of mankind by direct volitions, and continually reversing the course of nature by miraculous interpositions 
and this is believed still, wherever the invariability of law has established itself in men's convictions, as a general, but not as an universal, truth. In the change from polytheism to monotheism, the metaphysical mode of thought contributed its part, affording great aid to the uphill struggle which the positive spirit had to maintain against the prevailing form of the theological. M. Comte, indeed, has considerably exaggerated the share of the metaphysical spirit in this mental revolution, since by a lax use of terms he credits the metaphysical mode of thought with all that is due to dialectics and negative criticism, to the exposure of inconsistencies and absurdities in the received religions. But this operation is quite independent of the metaphysical mode of thought, and was no otherwise connected with it than in being very generally carried on by the same minds. Plato is a brilliant example. Since the most eminent efficiency in it does not necessarily depend on the possession of positive scientific knowledge. But the metaphysical spirit, strictly so called, did contribute largely to the advent of monotheism. The conception of impersonal entities interposed between the governing deity and the phenomena, and forming the machinery through which these are immediately produced, is not repugnant, as the theory of direct supernatural volitions is, to the belief in invariable laws. The entities not being, like the gods, framed after the exemplar of men, being neither, like them, invested with human passions, nor supposed, like them, to have power beyond the phenomena which are the special department of each, there was no fear of offending them by the attempt to foresee and define their action, or by the supposition that it took place according to fixed laws. The popular tribunal which condemned Anaxagoras had evidently not risen to the metaphysical point of view. Hippocrates, who was concerned only with a select and instructed class, could say with impunity, speaking of what were called the God-inflicted diseases, that to his mind they were neither more nor less God-inflicted than all others. The doctrine of abstract entities was a kind of instinctive conciliation between the observed uniformity of the facts of nature, and their dependence on arbitrary volition. Since it was easier to conceive a single volition as setting a machinery to work, which afterwards went on of itself, than to suppose an inflexible constancy in so capricious and changeable a thing as volition must then have appeared. But though the regime of abstractions was in strictness compatible with polytheism, it demanded monotheism as the condition of its free development. The received polytheism being only the first remove from fetishism, its gods were too closely mixed up in the daily details of phenomena and the habit of propitiating them and ascertaining their will before any important action of life was too inveterate, to admit, without the strongest shock to the received system, the notion that they did not habitually rule by special interpositions, but left phenomena in all ordinary cases to the operation of the essences or peculiar natures which they had first implanted in them. Any modification of polytheism which would have made it fully compatible with the metaphysical conception of the world, would have been more difficult to effect than the transition to monotheism, as monotheism was at first conceived. We have given, in our own way, and at some length, this important portion of M. Comte's view of the evolution of human thought, as a sample of the manner in which his theory corresponds with and interprets historical facts, and also to obviate some objections to it, grounded on an imperfect comprehension, or rather on a mere first glance.
Some, for example, think the doctrine of the three successive stages of speculation and belief inconsistent with the fact that they all three existed contemporaneously, much as if the natural succession of the hunting, the nomad, and the agricultural state could be refuted by the fact that there are still hunters and nomads. That the three stages were contemporaneous, that they all began before authentic history, and still coexist, is M. Comte's express statement, as well as that the advent of the two later modes of thought was the very cause which disorganized and is gradually destroying the primitive one. The theological mode of explaining phenomena was once universal, with the exception, doubtless, of the familiar facts which, being even then seen to be controllable by human will, belonged already to the positive mode of thought. The first and easiest generalizations of common observation, anterior to the first traces of the scientific spirit, determined the birth of the metaphysical mode of thought, and every further advance in the observation of nature, gradually bringing to light its invariable laws, determined a further development of the metaphysical spirit at the expense of the theological, this being the only medium through which the conclusions of the positive mode of thought, and the premises of the theological, could be temporarily made compatible. At a later period, when the real character of the positive laws of nature had come to be in a certain degree understood, and the theological idea had assumed in scientific minds its final character, that of a god governing by general laws, the positive spirit, having now no longer need of the fictitious medium of imaginary entities, set itself to the easy task of demolishing the instrument by which it had risen. But though it destroyed the actual belief in the objective reality of these abstractions, that belief has left behind it vicious tendencies of the human mind, which are still far enough from being extinguished, and which we shall presently have occasion to characterize. The next point on which we have to touch is one of greater importance than it seems. If all human speculation had to pass through the three stages, we may presume that its different branches, having always been very unequally advanced, could not pass from one stage to another at the same time. There must have been a certain order of succession, in which the different sciences would enter, first into the metaphysical, and afterwards into the purely positive stage. And this order M. Comte proceeds to investigate. The result is his remarkable conception of a scale of subordination of the sciences, being the order of the logical dependence of those which follow on those which precede. It is not at first obvious how a mere classification of the sciences can be not merely a help to their study, but itself an important part of a body of doctrine. The classification, however, is a very important part of M. Comte's philosophy. He first distinguishes between the abstract and the concrete sciences. The abstract sciences have to do with the laws which govern the elementary facts of nature laws on which all phenomena actually realized must of course depend, but which would have been equally compatible with many other combinations than those which actually come to pass. The concrete sciences, on the contrary, concern themselves only with the particular combinations of phenomena which are found in existence. For example, the minerals which compose our planet, or are found in it, have been produced and are held together by the laws of mechanical aggregation and by those of chemical union. It is the business of the abstract sciences, physics, and chemistry, to ascertain these laws, 
to discover how and under what conditions bodies may become aggregated, and what are the possible modes and results of chemical combination. The great majority of these aggregations and combinations take place, so far as we are aware, only in our laboratories. With these the concrete science, mineralogy, has nothing to do. Its business is with those aggregates, and with those chemical compounds, which form themselves, or have at some period been formed, in the natural world. Again, physiology, the abstract science, investigates by such means as are available to it the general laws of organization and life. Those laws determine what living beings are possible, and maintain the existence and determine the phenomena of those which actually exist. But they would be equally capable of maintaining in existence plants and animals very different from these. The concrete sciences, zoology, and botany, confine themselves to species which really exist, or can be shown to have really existed, and do not concern themselves with the mode in which even these would comport themselves under all circumstances, but only under those which really take place. They set forth the actual mode of existence of plants and animals, the phenomena which they in fact present but they set forth all of these, and take into simultaneous consideration the whole real existence of each species, however various the ultimate laws on which it depends, and to whatever number of different abstract sciences these laws may belong. The existence of a date-tree, or of a lion, is a joint result of many natural laws, physical, chemical, biological, and even astronomical. Abstract science deals with these laws separately, but considers each of them in all its aspects, all its possibilities of operation. Concrete science considers them only in combination, and so far as they exist and manifest themselves in the animals or plants of which we have experience. The distinctive attributes of the two are summed up by M. Comte in the expression that concrete science relates to beings, or objects, abstract science, to events. Footnote. Mr. Herbert Spencer, who also distinguishes between abstract and concrete sciences, employs the terms in a different sense from that explained above. He calls a science abstract when its truths are merely ideal, when, like the truths of geometry, they are not exactly true of real things, or like the so-called law of inertia, the persistence in direction and velocity of a motion once impressed, are involved in experience but never actually seen in it being always more or less completely frustrated. Chemistry and biology he includes, on the contrary, among concrete sciences, because chemical combinations and decompositions, and the physiological action of tissues, do actually take place, as our senses testify, in the manner in which the scientific propositions state them to take place. We will not discuss the logical or philosophical propriety of either use of the terms abstract and concrete in which twofold point of view very few of the numerous acceptations of these words are entirely defensible but of the two distinctions m comte's answers to by far the deepest and most vital difference mr spencer's is open to the radical objection that it classifies truths not according to their subject matter or their mutual relations but according to an unimportant difference in the manner in which we come to know them of what consequence is it that the law of inertia, considered as an exact truth, is not generalized from our direct perceptions, but inferred by combining with the movements which we see, 
those which we should see if it were not for the disturbing causes. In either case, we are equally certain that it is an exact truth, for every dynamical law is perfectly fulfilled even when it seems to be counteracted. There must, we should think, be many truths in physiology, for example, which are only known by a similar indirect process, and Mr. Spencer would hardly detach these from the body of the science, and call them abstract, and the remainder concrete. End footnote. The concrete sciences are inevitably later in their development than the abstract sciences on which they depend, not that they begin later to be studied. On the contrary, they are the earliest cultivated, since in our abstract investigations we necessarily set out from spontaneous facts. But though we may make empirical generalizations, we can form no scientific theory of concrete phenomena until the laws which govern and explain them are first known and those laws are the subject of the abstract sciences. In consequence, there is not one of the concrete studies, unless we count astronomy among them, which has received, up to the present time, its final scientific constitution, or can be accounted a science, except in a very loose sense, but only materials for science, partly from insufficiency of facts, but more, because the abstract sciences, except those at the very beginning of the scale, have not attained the degree of perfection necessary to render real concrete sciences possible. Postponing, therefore, the concrete sciences as not yet formed, but only tending towards formation, the abstract sciences remain to be classed. These, as marked out by M. Comte, are six in number, and the principle which he proposes for their classification is admirably in accordance with the conditions of our study of nature. It might have happened that the different classes of phenomena had depended on laws altogether distinct, that in changing from one to another subject of scientific study the student left behind all the laws he previously knew, and passed under the dominion of a totally new set of uniformities. The sciences would then have been wholly independent of one another. Each would have rested entirely on its own inductions, and if deductive at all, would have drawn its deductions from premises exclusively furnished by itself. The fact, however, is otherwise. The relation which really subsists between different kinds of phenomena enables the sciences to be arranged in such an order that in travelling through them we do not pass out of the sphere of any laws, but merely take up additional ones at each step. In this order M. Comte proposes to arrange them. He classes the sciences in an ascending series, according to the degree of complexity of their phenomena so that each science depends on the truths of all those which precede it, with the addition of peculiar truths of its own. Thus, the truths of number are true of all things, and depend only on their own laws. The science, therefore, of number, consisting of arithmetic and algebra, may be studied without reference to any other science. The truths of geometry presuppose the laws of number, and a more special class of laws peculiar to extended bodies, but require no others. Geometry, therefore, can be studied independently of all sciences except that of number. Rational mechanics presupposes and depends on the laws of number and those of extension, and along with them another set of laws, those of equilibrium and motion. The truths of algebra and geometry nowise depend on these last, and would have been true if these had happened to be the reverse of what we find them but the phenomena of equilibrium and motion cannot be understood, nor even stated, 
without assuming the laws of number and extension, such as they actually are. The phenomena of astronomy depend on these three classes of laws, and on the law of gravitation besides, which last has no influence on the truths of number, geometry, or mechanics. Physics, badly named in common English parlance natural philosophy, presupposes the three mathematical sciences and also astronomy, since all terrestrial phenomena are affected by influences derived from the motions of the earth and of the heavenly bodies. Chemical phenomena depend, besides their own laws, on all the preceding, those of physics among the rest, especially on the laws of heat and electricity, physiological phenomena on the laws of physics and chemistry, and their own laws in addition. The phenomena of human society obey laws of their own, but do not depend solely upon these. They depend upon all the laws of organic and animal life, together with those of inorganic nature, these last influencing society not only through their influence on life, but by determining the physical conditions under which society has to be carried on. Chacun de ces degrés successifs exige des inductions qui lui sont propres, mais elles ne peuvent jamais devenir systématiques que sous l'impulsion déductive résultée de tous les ordres moins compliqués. Footnote. Système de politique positive. 2.36. End footnote. Thus arranged by M. Comte in a series of which each term represents an advance in speciality beyond the term preceding it, and, what necessarily accompanies increased speciality, an increase of complexity, a set of phenomena determined by a more numerous combination of laws. The sciences stand in the following order. First, mathematics, its three branches following one another on the same principle, number, geometry, mechanics. Second, astronomy. Third, physics. Fourth, chemistry. Fifth, biology. Sixth, sociology, or the social science, the phenomena of which depend on, and cannot be understood without, the principal truths of all the other sciences. The subject matter and contents of these various sciences are obvious of themselves, with the exception of physics, which is a group of sciences rather than a single science, and is again divided by M. Comte into five departments, biology or the science of weight, thermology or that of heat, acoustics, optics, and electrology. These he attempts to arrange on the same principle of increasing speciality and complexity, but they hardly admit of such a scale, and M. Comte's mode of placing them varied at different periods. All the five being essentially independent of one another, he attached little importance to their order, except that biology ought to come first, as the connecting link with astronomy, and electrology last, as the transition to chemistry. If the best classification is that which is grounded on the properties most important for our purposes, this classification will stand the test. By placing the sciences in the order of the complexity of their subject matter, it presents them in the order of their difficulty. Each science proposes to itself a more arduous inquiry than those which precede it in the series. It is therefore likely to be susceptible, even finally, of a less degree of perfection, and will certainly arrive later 
at the degree attainable by it. In addition to this, each science, to establish its own truths, needs those of all the sciences anterior to it. The only means, for example, by which the physiological laws of life could have been ascertained was by distinguishing among the multifarious and complicated facts of life the portion which physical and chemical laws cannot account for. Only by thus isolating the effects of the peculiar organic laws did it become possible to discover what these are. It follows that the order in which the sciences succeed one another in the series cannot but be, in the main, the historical order of their development, and is the only order in which they can rationally be studied. For this last there is an additional reason, since the more special and complete sciences require not only the truths of the simpler and more general ones, but still more their methods. The scientific intellect, both in the individual and in the race, must learn in the more elementary studies that art of investigation and those canons of proof which are to be put in practice in the more elevated. No intellect is properly qualified for the higher part of the scale without due practice in the lower. End of part 1b. Recording by Bill Borst.